Anybody who is here who is tired, the invitation is still the same. Come to me, Jesus says. Anybody here who is weary, come to me, Jesus says. Anybody who has a burden in their life, come to me, Jesus says. Gives us the invitation that we might share the yoke with him, an ancient agricultural image of that we are a part of pulling together. And because Jesus is a part of the pulling together, we will find rest. And I don't just mean a good night's sleep. I don't mean just that you have enough to be satisfied. I mean the kind of rest for your soul where you know that all things are well and that all manner of things shall be well. Come to me, Jesus says. And so whether you're in this sanctuary, whether you're online, as you come to this broadcast, as you come to Peachtree, it's not about us inviting you to Peachtree. It's about us as being a part of a family at Peachtree that says to all, come, come to Jesus. And that's the invitation. Week in and week out, day in and day out, are you coming to the foot of the cross? Are you coming to Jesus? Because he came all this way for you. I want to begin this morning with an invitation for you to be interactive, to guess something with the person that you might be watching with, seating with this morning, and that's this. How many questions does an average adult ask or verbalize every single day? Turn to somebody and guess. How many questions do you ask or verbalize every single day? The answer is six. The average adult verbalizes or asks six questions a day. Now, the typical three to five-year-old asks 300 questions in a day, which is why anybody who is a teacher in preschool or who is someone who is a stay-at-home parent is exhausted at the end of their day. 300 questions. And if you have more than one child, question upon question upon question. But you have to ask yourself, when we became adults, how is it that we lost an average of 294 questions a day. There was a Pulitzer Prize winning historian who called questioning and curiosity the engine of the intellect. Albert Einstein said that curiosity was something that was so valuable that he called it holy. And that this is not just true for productivity or efficiency or creativity, that the gift of curiosity is one of the most important things for us relationally as well. That inquisitiveness is usually the things that kind of makes a relationship go. One of the saddest conversations that I have ever had with my wife was after about 10 years of being married together and she came to me in a loving confrontation and through her tears when she was working through what was wrong, she looked at me and she said, you don't ask me anymore. 
all of those questions that we had at the beginning about discovery and dreams and trying to figure out something together, all of those questions, they just went away. And there was something in the loss of the intimacy of our relationship when I stopped asking. But it's not just for creativity's sake, it's not just for the sake of a relational practice, it's true with our spiritual lives, with our souls as well. Did you know that according to the New Testament, according to the Bible, that Jesus asked, we have recorded 307 questions, and yet he only directly answered eight questions. Jesus was 40 times more likely to ask a question than to answer it. And one of the things that I think that we in a church have forgotten to do is we're really good at proclamation and we're not very good at conversation. And this morning, I want you to realize that when we stop asking, we stop growing. That when we stop asking, we stop learning. That when we stop asking, we stop becoming the kind of people who live in the manner in which Jesus himself lived. With that holy sense of curiosity and wonder of God and the world in which we have made, my question for you to begin today is, have you lost your inquisitiveness. We're in the midst of a series of messages on the book of Acts, and we're talking about the different dimensions of the kingdom of God and how God has given us a job description and that we're called to bear witness. And then he gives us his spirit and his power, which instills within us courage to be able to face the threats and that one of the things that we will discover that happens in God's kingdom is that God's people They know how to ask questions. We're gonna be looking in the next three weeks at three different chapters of the book of Acts, chapters eight, nine, and 10, and they are three different stories of transformation. And on this day, as we read it, I want you to notice how many questions there are. Acts chapter eight. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet, The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to a slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears and silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet 
talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. May God bless not only the hearing and the reading, but also the receiving the incorporating and the embodying and the putting into practice of his holy word. This is an ancient and kind of unusual story. And I find that when we read stories like this, the information passes right before our eyes, but we don't have kind of the frame of mind to be able to understand it. And so let me kind of kindle within you a holy curiosity and imagination to understand some of the nuances of this story, to see some of the explosive nature of what's happening here. Because I didn't hear any gasps, any awes and oohs. So let me see if I can develop that for you. The first thing that you need to recognize, and hopefully you noticed in this story, is that this is a story about a man from Ethiopia. He's Ethiopian. Okay, this is 2,600 miles away from Jerusalem. With a chariot, it would have taken him probably two to three months of travel time for him to be able to get from northern Africa in Ethiopia all the way up to where it is. Now, there are many people that misunderstand the nature of the faith today in Africa. They think that Christianity only came to Africa when a kind of colonial slave period took place. What we see right here in Acts chapter 8 and what we will see throughout the book of Acts is that God's movement of the work of Christ is a globalized movement right from the beginning. That the gospel comes to this Ethiopian as he has approached Jerusalem, and that the gospel will return all the way back to Ethiopia as a result of the experience of what this man has. Here you have an African in around the city of Jerusalem who's about to encounter the gospel. And it will be part of the beginning of the explosion of the church around the world. In chapter 10, we'll see in a little bit the first European that actually gets converted to Christianity. So the first thing you notice is how far away this man is coming from and what his particular ethnicity and background is. The second thing you need to recognize is that he's a eunuch. That means he's been castrated. This is obviously not something that someone tends to do voluntarily. This is something of what happened to him. It was very common for high-level officials to have been mutilated in this way so that they were less of a threat to the people who were in power, that they were monarchs. Because they couldn't have offspring, they were of a particular shamed class that were called to serve the monarch. Now, what's important in this particular detail is that this man goes 2,600 miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in order to worship, and he's going to get to the temple in Jerusalem, and he's about to discover that he's not allowed to go in 
Deuteronomy 23.1 is very clear that no one who has been marred or altered in this way is allowed in the assembly of the Lord. So imagine yourself traveling all of that way in order to be able to go in to able to worship one of the great wonders of the world. And you go all that way and you're stopped at the door. He's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. His mode of transport is he's on a chariot. Chariots were expensive items. These were the limo, the stretch limos of the Roman Empire. Most people could not afford to travel by chariot. By chariot, you could go 25, 30 miles in a day, which was very different from having to walk everywhere. In other words, this guy is loaded. He is in charge of the queen's treasury in Ethiopia, and she has put all kinds of economic means at his disposal. So he's an African, he's a eunuch, he's, he's traveling in style, and then the next thing you need to know is that he's got what the NIV calls a book, but would be better translated as a scroll. He's wealthy enough that he is able to buy a hand-copied scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he is so educated that he can read Hebrew, and he is reading the actual Torah, even though he's from another country. And so he's reading the scroll, he's clearly bilingual, he's clearly educated, he's clearly interested in what's going on. They didn't read silently in the ancient world. When you read, you always said it aloud, which is how Philip recognizes that he is reading and is able to ask him if he understands it. And then the last thing I want you to notice is that this man comes to Jerusalem to worship, that he is religious, he is highly interested in inquisitiveness about God. In fact, it's possible that this man's ancestors are a part of the Jewish diaspora or spreading during the divided kingdom and when Israel is spread all over the world. It's possible that his ancestors from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago actually even potentially came from this part of the world. Are you starting to see the picture of the layers of the nuance of what's happening here? It amazes me and I so admire that you have the availability and the curiosity and the courage of Philip to ask a good question. And that you, this eunuch, in spite of being rejected, in spite of coming all of this way and not being allowed in, that this eunuch asks question after question after question. In his rejection, he has not turned to bitterness and turned inward. He has turned outward to continue to seek what the truth might be. One question from Philip that cascades into three questions from the eunuch. Questions are the kinds of things that unlock conversation. Part of the problem that we have as Christians today in our faith is that we're constantly trying to tell our world and to tell our culture the way that it ought to be. And there is a role for proclamation. But my friends, if Jesus was 40 times more likely to ask a question than to answer it, shouldn't we be 40 times more likely to ask the right kinds of questions and not just to keep pointing our fingers and telling people what? 
If there's anything I want you to glean from this story, it's this, that the way that God primarily works is through curious and careful reading of Scripture. Will you say this in unison with me? The way God primarily works is through curious and careful reading of Scripture. There's a woman by the name of Martha Danbridge who was born in Virginia in 1731. Here's a picture of what she looked like when she was around seven or eight years old. She was promised into marriage and married at the age of 18 years old. Here's what her portrait looked like when she was young and married. She was married for seven years and she very quickly had four children. The first child died when he was three years old. The second child died when he was four years old. The third child lived till she was 16 years old, but then she died. And her fourth child lived long enough to provide grandchildren, but he died as a young adult. Seven years into marriage, Martha ended up having her husband die as well. And two years after that, she remarried a man by the name of George. This would be a portrait that you would be more likely to recognize who I am talking about. I'm talking about the first first lady. This is Martha Washington. She and George raised their grandchildren And her grandchild, Nellie, said that one of the most striking features about her grandmother was that every single day, she would sit down at a table and she would read her Bible. A couple of years ago, I went to the Smithsonian Museum, and if you go to the Smithsonian, you can actually go in and you can see the very Bible that our first first lady read every single day in devotion and in prayer. During the eight years of the Revolutionary War, Martha Washington did not stay behind at Mount Vernon while her husband traveled to try to win the Revolutionary War. She traveled to every winter encampment in spite of all the hardship because she wanted to support the troops and to encourage them and to boost their morale. Eventually, Martha not only watched all of her children die and both of her husbands, she suffered greatly in this life. I recognize the complexity and the tragedy of talking about many of our founding mothers and fathers with that of slavery. But I want to acknowledge that and say in the midst of all of that, we should not lose the point of where our country would be were it not for the biblical faithfulness of Martha Washington. Scholars debate the religious piety of George Washington. Nobody questions the faithfulness of Martha Washington. How do we know? Because of her correspondence. 
After George Washington died, people poured out their condolences, and these are some of the things that she said. When the mind is deeply afflicted by those irreparable losses, the good Christian will look for consolation to that being who alone can pour balm into the bleeding heart and who has promised to be the widow's God. In the severe and trying times of life, our only sure rock of comfort and consolation is that of divine being who orders and directs all things for our good. And in response to condolences that someone had said, she said, and while these alleviate our grief, we find that the only source of comfort is from above. Amidst the complexity and the tragedy, the horrors, the pain of watching soldier after soldier after soldier die, not only from warfare, but from disease, from malnourishment, and from those long, arduous winters. She kept going back year after year and day after day to her Bible. And I can't help but think that the faithfulness of her dedication to God's Word is a part of the fabric of the providence of this country, our land. Today is a special milestone in the life of this church. It's not just Chuck's birthday. It's the day that we are celebrating 100 years of women's ministry here at Peachtree. And we inherit not only the legacy of faithful women who were a part of the legacy of our faith from American history, but that's even localized here in this church. I'll bet many of you at this service know who this woman is. This is Martha Wilson, spouse of Jean Wilson, distinguished pastor of this church before the standards got lowered and you hired me. Martha Wilson started teaching the Bible in a co-ed setting in 1937 doing something that basically nobody else did at the time in American Christianity. She was a trailblazer who kept going back to the well of God's word over and over again. Do you know that she kept teaching God's word at Peachtree from 1937 to my understanding is to 2005? year after year, day after day, going back to God's word and sharing it with us. I firmly believe that behind the backbone of this church have been women who have prayed and studied and read and asked questions. I firmly believe that the backbone of our country has benefited from women who prayed 
and read and studied. And I believe if you go all the way back to the early church, there are women and men and outsiders who read and asked questions. And my question for us is, have we lost that sense of inquisitiveness? Interesting study that came up. Everybody's been trying to study the difference between what happened before COVID and what's happening after COVID. Some people who chart um, in American landscape about what's happening with American Christianity. They reported that starting in COVID, that there became a hunger for people to know more about the Bible. That people are reporting, if you look at the data pre-COVID and you look at the data post-COVID, people report that they want a higher understanding of the Bible. Probably not a surprise. But what is a surprise is that while we report a higher desire to know God and to know the Bible, actual reading of the Bible in the pandemic has gone down and not up. Have we lost our sense of curiosity? Today's passage in Acts chapter 8 is not rocket science. Read the Bible and ask a lot of questions. Read the Bible and ask a lot of questions. The primary way that God has worked in history is through a careful and curious reading of Scripture. In Acts chapter 9, which we'll get to next week, there'll be blinding lights, there will be voices from above. Most people I know, that's not their story. This is your story. That in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of your rejection, in the midst of your loss, you did not turn to bitterness, but to God's word, and you kept asking, and God kept promising. Founder of the Presbyterian Church, John Calvin, puts it like this. And this is why the reading of Scripture bears fruit with such few people today. This is back in the 16th century. Because scarcely one in a hundred is to be found who gladly submits himself to teaching. Will you submit yourself to teaching? I think the reason that we don't ask is because we don't have the humility of an Ethiopian eunuch. And we don't have the availability of a Philip. Read the Bible. Ask a lot of questions. Let's pray. God, where did all those questions go? Forgive us for no longer asking not just as a matter of our intellect and curiosity, but in our relationship with you. Lord, help us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus to ask a lot more questions than we try to provide answers. And help us, God, to keep asking so that we can keep growing and to keep asking so that we can keep learning and that we keep asking so that we can keep exploring. Give us a great sense of curiosity. Help us to be like that Ethiopian eunuch that even in the midst of the disappointment, even in the midst of the loss, no matter how wealthy and educated we may be, may we be willing to open our scrolls and to ask, who can this be? 
Lord, help us to be careful readings of your word. Help us to be curious admirers of your word. And give us, O God, the faith of a Martha Wilson who a part of this church forever continued to go back to your word and to share it with your people. And so, Father, I ask on this day that you will give us teachable spirits. And on the milestone of this anniversary, we will be grateful for the women who asked a lot of really good questions and found the joy and the passion of your promises in your holy word. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people today.